1: From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Thank you. Welcome to the Land and Legacy Podcast. It's your host Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. And we are here with another Land of Legacy podcast right here on the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network. We're super excited for this one. Woo!
0: You know why, Matt. I, I know why. And I think everyone else knows why, too, because we've only been talking about these films and the podcast to go along right. with the films. For a year and a half now. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but no. that's okay, because I, <clears throat> I feel like now that the film, our first film of eight for 2018 is out there on the old airwaves, it's. I feel like people are like, okay, that's why it took longer to build up and, <laughs> and get this thing because hopefully you're impressed, you like the quality, you like the message that was portrayed. Um, and, and for me, and I know you feel the same way, um, and, and close family and friends and everyone else who's part of it, it just came together, episode one, beautifully. I think it captured the essence, if you will, of,
1: of what we're trying to do, as far as there was a hunting, there was hunting success. There was uh, habitat improvement. There was a legacy or a uh, kind of a uh, inspiring story of a guy buying his first piece of ground. Yep. And so it was really, really. Oh, I, I hope that with all the storylines involved, it kind of captured all the different things that we that we enjoy so much. So
0: we're not, we're not like super. Mm. Businessy marketing, this and that. But, like, I, as a brand, if you will, of Land and Legacy, I hope that just kind of hit the nail on the head as mm-hmm. what it is that we do, our beliefs, the respect that we have for the land. And, and basically, this is kind of a way, honestly, to, to honor it mm-hmm. and respect it as we as we hopefully teach people through management techniques yeah, to, I, to, I, res- to respect the land, restore the land.
1: When we had Sherman on the podcast a couple, couple uh takes ago yep um i said i think But the word of choice for me was inspire and hopefully yeah. hopefully it got that but going back to the you know we've been asked uh, uh, quite a bit about when are you guys doing videos when are you doing videos mm-hmm. it's like it's like well we just can't do them or we're, we're building to it and it's like now that they've seen the first one hopefully they realize oh yeah it's not adam and matt went and got a camcorder <laughs> and went <out laughs> and produced something no, <laughs> like it, no. we could not do uh this is selfies on the iPhone. I, I feel as passionate. Yeah, how do I say this without sounding bad? And I try not toot our own horn, but um, we're we're very passionate. And I I think that um, when it comes to land, you'd be hard pressed to find somebody in the same little circle. There's a lot of people that are passionate, but I think we're passionate in a different way. Um, we're not driven for the huge antlers or whatever. It's more about just. Uh, the land improvement and the conservation of the land and
0: and the rest follows
1: and the rest follows but that's not it's just a a side product but we're also um, teamed up with slate and glass and and the team there that that uh is very passionate and very driven to do the very best they can with it Mm -hmm. and i think that showed through so um, no, if sure. you haven't seen it yet it's in show notes you can check it out on our Facebook page you can see the teaser on Instagram you can see it on YouTube our YouTube channel web page um, there's many everywhere. places if you haven't seen it yet it's your own it's, it's your, your own, own fault so uh, we encourage you to go check that out and watch that before you listen to this entire podcast so if you've made yep. it this far you haven't seen it pause it go check it out um, because it's going to help you in understanding what we're talking about on this week's podcast. And this is kind of the format of what we said all along. As soon as we release a film, we will go back and cover every single thing um, that we talked about on the on the film. Because, frankly, there's... Films aren't long enough to cover every little minor detail, so you're going to get that all right
0: here in the podcast because we can ramble on for an hour. That's right. We can so. give the dirty details of, of the management aspect of things, whether it's a, a herbicide ratio of, of the, the management practice that we chose to do on a specific, you know, we did this over this and here's why. We can talk about that right here. So you got a visual of it with the film and understanding the backstory but we're going to dive into why the how and uh the details of those events that you guys saw in the film
1: for sure so uh i will add before we jump into this um that here's a little update on the prairie hollow property our home base um you've been kind of early on in a lot of the podcasts you heard us talking about it and we haven't talked about a lot uh here recently because we've been so doggone busy but um, you knew about the logging operation that was going on, um, and that got paused for a little while because uh, the logger had another project he needed to complete um, with a deadline. So he's coming back soon, but we've also moved in a um, guy. So we're going to have about six to eight acres cleared off and turned into food plots. It's been part of the 400 acres of straight timber. So big changes happening. I actually opened up the gate. And got the guy moved in there this afternoon, right before I got back to the house, to start recording this podcast. So it's going to be changing in the coming days, and we should be ready to plant all kinds of Stratton seed in there
0: this spring. So I got one more update. In addition to this podcast that we do and release on Tuesday mornings, Adam and I are taking it up another notch, and because it's turkey season, we're turkey nuts, we are doing an additional podcast each week for the time being kind of do a trial run and we will be releasing a separate podcast nothing with this one is going to change you're still going to get it we're still going to talk about the same things but we're going to do a hunting strategy focused podcast on saturday mornings to set to release on the sportsman's nation you don't have to change your rss feed just you'll get it saturday morning be sure to listen to it we're going to talk more about hunting strategies strategies result, revolving around the seasons that are open at that time. Um, it's another way for us to be able to share our passion for hunting. And we're excited about doing that because we get, you know, talking about habitat all the time, which we're passionate about. But this gives us... Sometimes you
1: know, I just want to talk hunting.
0: And this is... We're, we're, we're hunting overload right now um, as Missouri opens up. Um, this... Well, actually... This will release Tuesday. Turkey season opened up the day prior to this release, and so, so we're re- re- actively boy.
1: Opening day was fun. We um, tagged out. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, uh, that's definitely something uh, to get excited about. Um, and I think it's one of those things where, no, and the reason for that is you've you've heard us talk so much this spring. We wanted to, or this winter, we wanted to cover like January, February. We wanted to cover. I know I did. I wanted to talk to some of the. Contacts we had about uh, some of the quail management, quail habitat projects that and study research sites, but then it was also prescribed fire season. We felt prescribed fire was more important than the quail, um, and there was more people that could benefit from it. So we had to, we didn't even get to do the quail thing. This spring, we're wanting to talk about spring food plots and all this other stuff, and then here we are, <coughs> we can't even discuss spring turkey hunting strategies. And so
0: we got so much to talk about. <laughs>
1: And so little time. This is not a podcast where we struggle for content. <laughs> no. Um, we can ramble on about sunshine for an hour as you found that out last week. So, yep. um, anyway, let's go ahead and get started with this film number one Numero and kind of talk about it. Now, we kicked that film off on the family farm. I don't know how your notes line up, but what no- do you want to kick off first? Notes
0: start with the opening day <laughs> double, the turkey hunt that was seen um within that first film we're not gonna spend a whole lot of time on it um sure we are but just break down that kind of what we see and what we typically see at the beginning of turkey season here in missouri just the the timing in which the season opens up the way birds are typically um associated with each other um during that that time i think uh hit it when we're talking about
1: that that turkey hunt um, it was kind of one of those things though, that was very, uh, we talked about it a little bit on the film, but Chad and I haven't hunted together on opening day in a long time. Mm-hmm. And it was even when like he was in college and I was in high school, we still weren't hunting together. Cause I mean, we're, we're five years grade wise apart. So he was in college, I was in high school and this was the first spring that we actually got to kick off opening day together. And you were there, so you got Mm -hmm. to witness the Keith Brothers um, calling and doing our thing. Hopefully, you learned something. And, uh,
0: sorry. We, uh,
1: (laughs) we set up on those birds first thing. Of course, they didn't come in, that was kind of a weird deal. Um, and then they ended up, uh, we kind of moved around. And, uh, I mean, you watched it all unfold. Absolutely beautiful scenery two birds come strutting in or one bird strutting in the other one the looker and we we doubled up it was a fantastic hunt um and it was kind of just one of those it wasn't necessarily about the whole we killed two turkeys haw. it was more about the boy that was an experience and, a, and a mem- memories that'll last a long time that was actually the first time i think we'd hunted with zach Shermer who filmed that um and so it was kind of like we we're all getting to f- kind of feel for each other and then mm-hmm. that unfolded and i still remember Shermer's face when i turned gosh. around and and yeah. he's and you know, we watched these two birds come out in the alfalfa and he's like oh my gosh that was absolutely beautiful those birds gobbled at 25 yards yeah and
0: uh yeah because you, you and you and chad were up a little bit from zach and i and we, we were kind of communicating back and forth a little bit and um i remember as you guys were getting up to go and get the turkeys You know the cameras rolling, and Zach's just back there, pumped up, like yeah, 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 and was just jacked up. I mean, it just—they just—you fed them a line, and they just came right in. Yeah, and but that—he was as
1: jacked up as we were.
0: Oh yeah, but that—that to me, when when we talk about turkeys and turkey hunting, and terrain and the way sometimes turkeys will act and other times they won't those birds and and you kind of saw it in the film because we were actually able to utilize a creek that has high banks that runs throughout the majority of this property get down in that creek and walk it that's why this property that is so is deadly not even fair. <laughs> it's so deadly we used we utilized it all fall, other, all, all spring yeah. it's
1: it's like okay as long as there's not a downpour and that creek is just pouring and rushing and even then we may even put a boat in or something <laughs> Um, you just get in those really steep banks and you just go wherever you want through that you, little piece you, of the property. you
0: pop up and basically it's a little mini scouting trip and you see what mm-hmm. you need to see, get back down and cover and go. And and that worked out perfectly as, you know, birds got into, into the fields later in the morning. We got down to the creek and walked it up and um, you had gone ahead, spotted the birds and we all backed up and climbed up the bank and slid out the decoys. But what those birds had to do mm-hmm is cross that creek that you saw those high banks on. They mm-hmm. were in, in in actually in a neighbor's field, and we called them across the property line and across that creek, down in that gully, and back up they came. But they did like that. You yeah. didn't have to beg. You didn't have to. You just called. They I, gobbled. And I only called like four or five times. Well, and we kind of went back and forth. I, the way that property – And, and we basically, when we got up on the bank, we were pretty much eye level with them. I don't, we don't know if they saw that Jake decoy come out, but as soon as they called, it was just turn, look, okay, there's a decoy and walk. And they committed, it was a five, six minute hunt. It was, you didn't have to beg them to do anything. Um, But typically that obstruction, that obstacle of steep creek banks on birds committing and coming to a call can hang birds up but that visual aspect if if they did truly see it um the decoy come out or just saw the hint of jake in the field man it worked i mean they they committed they came to the call they gobbled they died at 25 yards and it was done deal
1: oh yeah now not to give too much away but we wish it was that easy on the second film
0: (laughs) yeah yeah. That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> They're going to enjoy we, that one. Turkey's I think. died still.
1: Yes. Yeah, Turkey's died but <coughs> not in conventional ways.
0: <laughs> no. <laughs> but uh but that's Turkey hunting though too. You've got to <laughs> adapt to basically the hand, the cards you're dealt and yeah. go with it. That what we're talking about and not give away details, but that was a last the last day of season.
1: What's ethical? What's fun? What's safe? What's legal? That's what that was. Yeah. You can put all that, and then there's many different ways you can do it. As long as it's ethical, and it's safe, and it's legal, have at it. and
0: uh, We'll support you along the way, because yeah, we've probably it, done it a time or two ourselves. Yeah,
1: it's definitely one of those, you know, not, not your conventional turkey hunt. Um, turkey hunts, I should say. So yeah. that's given too much away now. So anyway, the first first part of that film was just a, a great turkey hunt, and I, and I hope everybody enjoyed it, because I know we sure did. It was just a...
0: Picture perfect. A time. breath
1: of fresh air is what yeah. it was. Uh, yeah. I haven't had that much fun <clears throat> on an opening day of Missouri turkey season, in well,
0: and well, in a too, long time. Not not just for you guys. I'm going to be selfish here too. I mean, it was fun for me to be able to sit back and and watch you know all this unfold from from an observation standpoint. But for us as a land and legacy, as a company, for everyone involved. To have that kick off a hunt, a family coming together um, that hadn't been able to share a hunt like that in many, many years—well, I guess ever—and then it be successful and in a beautiful setting, it doesn't get any better than that. When I mean, really last—the
1: last time we hunted an opening day together, we really didn't know what we know now. So yeah. It exactly. was a, a lot different. Time, times have definitely changed, so it was definitely a, a symbolic uh, hunt for us exactly. as far as what a hunting a hunt is. It is not just about harvesting an animal; it's so much more. So, hopefully, they enjoyed it. Ready to move let's, on to the second part. Let's dive into that's um,
0: this twenty-acre section at yeah. your family farm, um, and what we're going to go through basically the steps that led from okay, what it was, the history of this this 20 acre section over time through time and then what has led to the decisions that we've made going forward and then the practices that are going to need to take place yep um so my i said in
1: the film my entire life that this has been kind of the neglected 20 acres that has and and that just blows my mind that I almost feel kind of stupid saying that, neglected 20 acres, because mm-hmm. some people, some of the properties we've been on have only been 20 acres. Yeah. And this is 20 acres, it's just like, bah, whatever. You just drive and past I, as you I'll, go through the farm. Like It's, it's the very beginning w- entrance of the farm. <clears throat> the main gate goes right beside it. Mm-hmm. It kind of sits off. Um, it's kind of a portion of the property, our eastern portion, that's just – it's it's mostly, as the film said, 80% open, 20% timber. Even the 20% timber isn't great. It's like big, wolfy post oaks. And, and mixed uh, and, hickory. And mixed hickory and some other stuff. And then, of course, cedars. Um, and when I was a kid, we used to put the heifers in there. Mm-hmm. And um, it it's weird how times have changed a little bit, but... It was grazed a lot harder when I was a kid at, during a certain time of the year because I remember going out there and there's rocks, baseball size and softball size rocks everywhere, and which, which is typical for here, kind of southern Missouri Ozark area. Typical in a uh, those a, rocks a are everywhere, yes. are everywhere, but they're not naturally on top. And the Correct. reason they're on top now is because when my dad was growing up, that's where they always held their hogs. And so those hogs were rooting around, and there's just rocks laying everywhere. You have to be careful, or there used to be, where you would almost roll your ankle because there was just so much, so many rocks. And then at one point, my dad borrowed a rock rake on the back, a three point hitch rock rake, and raked them up. And there's more, now they're more in piles. And uh, they're still scattered around, but not near what they used to be. And so that was kind of my childhood was this overgrazed, neglected, um, heifer, uh, pasture is basically what it was, but it was kind of like there was 10 heifers because there wasn't much grass and it was just a place to get them away and that's where they stayed. And so, um, as time went on about 10 to 14 years ago, somewhere in there, um, a family member had a horse that needed that, the place they were storing it, um, basically they they couldn't keep the horse there and so dad's like i'll i'll take the horse so the horse went to that 20 acres and it stayed there and we tried to put it in with cows it ran everywhere ended up staying that's where the horse was so it had 20 acres to itself and being a little bit different grazer than a cow it was eating only really grass and not touching anything else so everything else that it wasn't touching was just getting to grow like crazy and it so, had no
0: predators, no, nah,
1: it had no competition, yep, and so all it turned into was horse trails everywhere mm-hmm. and briars and briars and broom and broom sedge, and then of course, the cedars just kept growing and growing and growing to where I mean, it was it was kind of that weird, brushy, nasty stuff that was actually kind of since we never went in there, it was a great sanctuary um just because we were never there and it still had some gr- taller broom sedge and and briars and and even though the horse was in there it, it, the horse really only kind of stayed around the perimeter up close to the road so it was it was basically a sanctuary it still it still is but we're going to make it a whole lot better um and so that's really kind of the history of which is of a, a where r- the, really
0: good point to make and mm-hmm. i feel like that's where a lot of people sometimes can get caught up in things is say hey I, I know deer deer on this property or on this portion of my property <laughs> and they spend a lot of time there but I'm, I'm designating that as a sanctuary and I don't want to change it because they spend a lot of time there but don't be afraid to change the habitat in a place that's already secure changing the habitat to improve it and changing it to or not changing it not managing to let it continue to grow up and get Less attractive in a bedding, you know, situation mm-hmm. is not good. And if you're if you're in that, if you find yourself in that scenario, is like, well, what do I do? Do I do I go in and do I manage it? Do I manipulate? I don't want to run them out of there. Know that if you're improving the quality of the bedding, and it's still a sanctuary, it's still safe. You're going to experience even better sanctuaries <clears throat> than letting it just continue to grow. And, and not manipulate it. I'll try
1: and simplify that. Basically, over time, it
0: turns from good
1: cover, good forage, to just good sink, or good security. By flipping it, give it a facelift, <laughs> doing what we're going to do now, we're going to have great forage, great cover, and great security. Yes. And, and that's the big difference is we're going to give them three things, the, the cover, security, forage, um, versus just one thing of security. And, and that's kind of the whole eastern red cedar debate that we did a while back that we about got ran out of habitat managers for um, <laughs> is the fact that you now Eastern red cedar is oftentimes people assume that it's a great bedding area just because there's security there, but you could actually have um, really, really beneficial forage and cover that provide the same security that the Eastern red cedar does. Um, so, you know, I thought of this the other day, somebody says, Oh, those Eastern red cedar, they sure are a good wind block for a deer, Well, you know what else is a clump of switchgrass or clump, a uh-huh. little blue. Um, or a plum thicket
0: with some grass growing through it. So, um, Which seems weird as it being a grass, but if you've ever just laid down or gotten below the top of that grass, the tops of those grasses all level shear the wind so well. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you you don't feel it as you lay s- on and it. And sunshine it. still comes through.
1: Oh, it's, be- so it's a beautiful it's, thing. It's more ideal and it's more beneficial. So a um, lot better water infiltration, everything, everything. So... Um, and of course we'll go on and on cause I know we have more notes on this. So that's kind of the history of going from hogs to cows to horse. Um, and the horse was, uh, I got out of there about a year ago. Um, and so then that was kind of the, okay, now we have a clean slate. And so for us, it was like, okay, how can we make this the best 20 acres we can? And I, I'll say one thing real quick on why we hadn't hunted it a lot in the past, and this is part of our strategy on how we're going to mm-hmm. have to set it up, but we hadn't actually – we knew there were deer in there the whole time. Like any time we ever went in there, we would jump deer or see deer sign. And, I mean, my dad found one of our hitless bucks dead in there this year. They don't know if the neighbor shot or if he was hurt during the rut um, or what, but he was dead in there. And usually when I find like – and there was another old dead deer that – that was basically all chewed up, and it was just some bases, but I um, mean when I start finding those spots where there's multiple dead deer that usually I start going, okay, why are they dying here? And a lot of times it goes with they're trying to seek out the securest place they know mm-hmm. and and because they're sick, they're hurting, they don't know what's going on. they want to find the safest place to go and try and heal up, and they oftentimes die in those places
0: they so, can't they can't basically get away from danger. They can't escape a predator, so they need to get into the places that are thickest and
1: hide. Like, if you get feeling sick or I get feeling sick, I want to go to my bed and lay yep. there until I feel better. They don't have that ability to just get away and go feel better. They have to find what is the safest place for them. And and so that's one tip to keep in mind is if you find those spots where there's multiple dead animals or dead deer, and you're like, why are they all in here? That's usually a pretty good indicator that... That's a very little place. pressure in yeah. that area. Yeah, that's a place they feel safe. So keep that in mind. But anyway, so this area, we knew there was deer in there, but the way it sets up is just not great trees to hunt it. Mm-mm. So it's always been kind of one of those we've hunted around the fringes, um, but we haven't dove in there to uh, to hunt it. And so and that'll it, be and part doesn't... of our strategy as we convert it to more native grasses and wildflowers and. And get this great bedding area. And we're going to plant some plums and some other shrubby stuff as well. But uh, we'll probably be moving in a couple redneck blinds just because, I, you know, we've talked about this before, I think. But it's a great chance to put a blind because there's no trees. It just, it's just – it's the way we have to hunt it. Mm-hmm. So you, you can't the, – ironically, the trees – that are there are out kind of out in the middle. And so we have to walk through the bedding area to get to these trees to really hunt it. So, um, it's going to be something that I I dream of the day of putting a redneck and I already kind of thinking of the point, but the highest point on the kind of up there by the pond, um, where we can get to it. They never see us entering we come in through the hayfield, mm-hmm. um, and then we get in the blind, and we oversee all that. And kind it of action be, corner there. Oh, I know it's right. going to exactly be so good. Yep. It's going to be so good. So, definitely exciting thing for us to move the redneck in in the coming years and and enjoy some great rut hunts during Missouri rifle season. So, mm-hmm.
0: what? Well, and that's you know you've you've touched on really one one big aspect of okay why this management is is intensifying in this area and that's from a hunting aspect but it's important though from a land aspect and from a functionality of your family's farm when it comes to the cattle operation to continue to manage this area as well because at one point more cattle were benefiting from this in years that you've been alive and on this and if we think about it from a cattle standpoint and from a habitat standpoint for wildlife, how can we kind of marry the two and get the most out of that 20 acres for both species, for for an income-producing side of things for the cattle and from a habitat?
1: How can we be productive for both the cattle and the wildlife? And and that's been the dilemma and is the dilemma for most multi-use properties is trying to find that balance of having great habitat
0: and great forage for the cattle a lot of people's ears just tuned up and said whoa wait, 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 you got my attention i hope so I'm, i hunt a cattle farm if you hunt a cattle farm listen up because there's some things that may not be um common knowledge when it comes to fescue and it, when it comes to grazing opportunities beyond just fescue for cattle
1: yeah i and i think first i'll describe a grass for you and i'll say um and i'm going to steal this uh from a friend of mine who's a big cattle farmer but Um, what kind of grass can you plant and if grazed at a certain time at a heavy um, grazing pattern to where raises the body temperatures so high to where um, they may not be um, able to reproduce or they may have really bad weaning weights or they may be so hot with their body temp that they lose their switch, their tail, they may have ears fall off, they may lose hooves um, they may stand all day in a water hole to try and cool down. They may stand all day under a shade tree to try and cool down because their body temp is so high. If I t- explain that grass and you say, dang, I don't ever want to plant bad. that. That sounds horrible. And I tell you that's tall fescue with endophyte bacteria basically in it, um, you're going to say, darn,
0: I didn't know that. Why? And this is this is something that... Um I guess I question and and there's a, there's a time in which that endophyte is not nearly as um, intense in that fescue that where there's a large a, c- a, a, lar- a large portion of the year it's like that during summer months when it has a head on it, that's when it's worse but at the same time most cattle farms especially in our area don't have another forage to be able to put their cattle on so they're still grazing this fescue when the endophyte's when it's the hottest out. They got black Angus, which are hot cows. They're increasing their body temperatures during the hot temperatures of the year, and they're not gaining weight. No. They're the basically. Cattle are sometimes surviving. dropping weight. But why are we why are we putting cattle on this feed or asking them to forage on this when it's not getting anywhere it's not you're not gaining anything from it during this portion of the year? Now, Now, before you shut it off, before you shut this podcast off,
1: (laughs) hear me out when I say fescue's not all bad for the cattle farmer. Obviously, there's a reason why we planted 17 million acres of it here in Missouri. um, And we still have it on the farm, and we will probably continue to have it on the farm for a while because it is so great during a certain time of the year. Um, But during the summer months... It doesn't take much to beat it as far as production and weight gain and overall health of your cattle. So, ding, 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 income native grasses. And that's what this 20 acres comes back to. Uh, When we look at the amount of weight gain we can get from native grass grazing during the summer months. And, you know, there's a huge difference between the way you can graze native grass and the way you can graze tall fescue. Now, in the in the uh, <coughs> film, I talk about how grazing um, kind of changed, and and along came the fescue, and, and I'll explain that more now. Is whenever we were grazing cattle farming in the '30s and '40s, and we were kind of in this really coming out of the depression and the Dust Bowl, we were grazing grass hard, and most of the time that was a what is the word that Grandpa used? Wild grass, I think. I forget what he called it on the podcast, but he said just wild grass. Um, And that was just your mix of native grasses, little blue, big blue, Indian grass, switchgrass, um, even your cool season native grasses. Um, All that was getting grazed so much that we're basically um, grazing it into the dirt. The way we graze fescue now. But native grass doesn't respond in the same way that fescue a non-native cool season will respond so the native cool seasons or native warm seasons were not able to come back as quickly and it didn't take farmers long to get frustrated with that and have to find another option because if not they were going to lose the farm along came tall fescue and that's really what fescue is the saving grace for the cattle farmer especially here in the midwest and so that's what really that's why farmers love it uh, just because now you can graze when fescue came along it it answered it answered their problem of having a grass that they could graze a little more um har- <laughs> hardcore and graze it in the dirt and uh and so farmers just l- fell in love with it and started planting it everywhere and um here we are with it today going darn I wish we'd have done something a little bit different. For me, I, I think about all the native grass that was so beneficial to the wildlife. And not just native grass, but your mix and diversity of forbs. And uh, so it was something really, really, it was, it was a saving grace, but now it's kind of, there's a way to diversify.
0: There, there's a good parallel that we can mm. make between planting the fescue and saying, hoping that it, it is a solve all, fix all grass. Yeah, that's gonna to solve everything, and it, and it's not. It's, it's the same way things. with saying what kind of food
1: plot can I plant? That's exactly. the best. It's like there's well, there's one that's great for this time of year. There's one great, and and we say native grass is great forage. It's great summer forage. Now, mm-hmm. if if I had an entire farm of of native grass, I would struggle to graze it all year just because of it, it's not growing during it's the fall dormant. and spring so there's a big window there that it's not really growing a whole lot so it wouldn't it wouldn't be ideal to graze it and graze it and graze it all through the fall so that's why this mixed diversity can come in and uh, and that's the reason that's the the process with the family farm is diversifying our grazing system
0: so, so. but that directly mm-hmm. impacts the habitat too because a lot of this area or portions of this area this mm-hmm. 20 acres was fescue um, the remedy is to spray that out, use a herbicide to terminate the fescue and then plant native grasses that are going to increase the amount of forage for cattle. But then give a give deer, quail, turkey places to escape, places to nest, places mm-hmm. to hide fawns, places to hide cubbies. Like it has so much more potential now from a wildlife aspect and a cattle aspect that you can diversify your grazing rotation now this 20 acres is not something you just drive past it's something that is an integral part of the farm and it's a work in progress so i don't want to skip over the fact of okay all the other the hickories the cedars all those have been cut out and treated and then like we saw in the video that area was burned but now it's a, it's a portion, you guys, you and your brother just did this a couple of weeks ago when the fescue was greening up in the spring, you sprayed a herbicide on it, this regular glyphosate, 5% glyphosate, on the fescue to terminate it. And this is the great they time say to do so. two
1: quarts per acre is what our plan was, so.
0: This is, this is a perfect time to do so as it's a cool season grasses, the natives aren't growing yet. And so that non-selective herbicide can go wherever and only affects the fescue. And now that fescue is terminated, gone. And the following steps is to bring pure air into this and plant some natives and see what else comes back because there's still areas. I think, I think there's some on the film. I know at least we filmed that while we were there on on site, but there's areas of little blue there. There's areas that we want, um, ragweed goldenrod, Um, And since some of the blackberry that was overtaking it, there's still going to be some of those pockets out there too.
1: No, for sure. And I think that's important to understand that um, we're eliminating the tall fescue from this area and we're going to eliminate a lot of the briars from the get-go, but it's not like we're converting the whole area into native grass because that would still, if we took it and we're like, okay, let's plant little blue Indian grass and big blue over this entire area all we did was take a tall fescue non-native cool season grass monoculture and turn it into a native warm season monoculture still not ideal for what we're going for now it's a little bit better but it's not optimal and so we're looking at how can we add as much diversity as possible and that's where We're gonna, of course, we're gonna have the the uh, trees, the big oaks, scattered through it. We're gonna have some plum thickets. We're gonna have some other types of shrubby species. We're gonna have the grasses uh, and multiple species of native grasses. We're gonna even have some native cool season grasses. Your rye's in there, and then we're gonna have a lot of wildflowers and a bunch of pollinator type plants growing in it. To where there's all kinds of species out there large number of diversity, and we will continue to add to that over time just because we want to increase as much diversity as possible.
0: And that only helps the wildlife and the overall goals for this section.
1: Why? We've covered it so many times that I feel like we'll cover it again. (laughs) Diversity. So each species of plant is going to be ideal for a certain species of insect, which can also mean multiple species of insects for the diet of birds Um, and then there's all kinds of different things pollinating through all times all types of or all time frames of the year Um, and then there's all kinds of different stuff that's going to be growing and green and young and tender for browse for the deer throughout the year so there's always something growing in the soil and there's always um, something there for the things growing in this or things moving in the soil the earthworms there's always something beneficial for the wildlife and not just above ground but below ground
0: and if, if, if you're putting all this together i guess in your head um what's going to be utilizing this portion of the property the most during the summertime is going to be fawns turkey poults quail but then the cattle as well. And I know we've shared the study or talked about it. um, Research coming out of Southwest Missouri with the, basically the interactions, the interface of of cattle grazing um, and and quail numbers and that restoration. And they're, they're sharing some incredible numbers on, on the impact that the cattle positive impact that cattle have on quail. um, And basically that, that relationship they have back and forth. So summertime great for that. It's not going to be grazed to the dirt. It's going to be managed forage, and the cattle are going to be pulled off of that when there's not as great forage, put on different areas of the farm, and then they're still going to have structure, still going to have grasses for deer to be bedding in during the fall, late fall, and winter months when it's coldest outside. they gonna get that radiation from the sun through that grass, and it's going to be a sanctuary um, that, again, they've got, plum thickets, they've got briar patches, they've got um warm season grasses to bed in. It's going to be incredible. And I think I'm trying
1: to think of other things that we haven't touched on that we need to understand is um those cows, the way they graze is think of it as they're gonna graze the top third and leave the bottom two thirds of the native grasses. So some of it's gonna get trampled over but then come right back. Um some of it's still gonna be standing. I mean I they're gonna eat the. You, most, it's you, like you look at a grazed. Tinder. You look at a at a uh, grazed native grass, native warm season grass field that's grazed properly. It's gonna look like the dullest bush hog in the world went through
0: it. At the highest level, it could at, have. <laughs> it's just
1: like I, I think. Sometimes when you're trying to mow a yard and you have really, really, really dull blades and you mm-hmm. kind of go over it real fast.
0: Yep. And so it looks like you just. Shearing some yeah, tops it's, and it's it's kind of looks mismatched. Yeah, it's diversity it's, again. Yeah, but they're kind of like deer. The deer eat most tender portions, new, fresh, tender edges or parts of plants. Cattle are going to take the tops off these warm season grasses and then nibble on the forbs that are lower down. Like it's going to have different stages and different growths again. That structure aspect of things to high fawns and, to and there's many benefits. Cults
1: there's many benefits because of not just above ground as far as um, there's always going to be something standing or some sort of structure. Um, and especially if we pull them off, the plan is to put them on in probably May, um, late May, mid May, whatever, and and then pull them off in August. And during that time frame, there's going to be all kinds of rest for the other cool season, the tall fescue stockpiled or, or our cover crops. They're all going to be Resting at that point, and that is one of the key components of healthy plants: is that there's a rest period. And so, mm-hmm. then once we pull them off, there's all kinds of time for those native grasses to then make seed and finish growing. And, and that's what not just a healthy plant above the ground, but it's a healthy plant below the ground. To where, if you're eating a, if you're you not not you specifically, but if your animals are eating a plant into the bottom six inches. It's not really designed to be eaten like that constantly to where even though it's still growing, it's not as healthy as it could be. And that's a big part of the rotational grazing
0: that we're going to be doing on the farm. Despite we commonly see lip high pastures everywhere we go. But here's another aspect. When, when the cattle are grazing and defecating, there's manure everywhere that's going to attract the insects, the bugs. That is a huge portion of the diet for pults and young quail. That's going to be there The insects. Yeah, the insects. (laughs) Not the... the They're not scratching through the turds. (laughs) But they're going to be eating those insects that are following these um, cattle throughout. And it's just... It's a magnet. And um, all that, again, that interaction between a farm, a multi-use property, and one resource that was forgotten that can still be restored. There's still hope in this 20 acres. It just is going to take management. It's going to take work. And it's going to take a process for and time for all this to take place we understand but it's not a forgotten abandoned portion of your farm i'm sure there's some some place on a farm that you've got or that you have access to that you might be able to approach the owner or maybe you are the owner that you can say i've always thought there could be more here what is it i'm not sure we can help you with that but don't just abandon some place no. there's 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 more that it can it can hold there's especially
1: don't abandon it in a an uh, an area with non-natives like and and I want you to understand that why we picked this spot or why this spot is ideal for the native grasses and wildflowers is because now we've talked about web soil survey in the past but looking at web soil survey this site registers as upland woodland and it's on that tail end of borderline upland woodland, upland savanna type site. And so it's a little more open than your typical woodland. And it could be just part of, of cutting out trees in the past or a lot of fire, or it was just a more open woodland than than you would typically think. But it registers as upland woodland. woodland it's not great soil. It's actually really, really rocky, and that's where you see a lot of the native grasses. So think about this whenever you try to understand why non-native or or non-native cool-season grass like tall fescue or smooth brome, something like that, versus your native warm-season grasses. So in this area, if we were to say, hey, I want it all in fescue, that's what I want, we would have to fertilize it and lime it almost heavily we would have to do it very heavily year after year after year just to get it to be productive but with the native native warm season grasses the native grasses and wildflowers they're so adapted to that site that we're not going to have to fertilize or line them we're going to basically get the site prepped plant it and know that they're going to do their they're going to do their job and just because of the great root systems that they have and, uh, you know, I'm really excited about having one of the guys from Pure Air Natives come on here and talk about different types of, of planting methods and, and the ways to really manage native grasses because I, there's so much there's an bad process. information out there about yeah. native grasses. And so it's one of those things that um, I think that you, you guys should really be looking forward to. But that's why we picked this site for native grasses is it's a really rough piece of ground And it's not optimal for these non-native grasses because it's going to take so much input just to get them to be productive, but it's not going to take hardly anything to get the native grasses to be productive because that's what already wants to be there. Working with Mother Nature, not against her.
0: That's it. I think that really covers that 20 acres very well and gives an understanding of, okay, what, what it was, the processes, the reasons, and moving forward, what it's going to be and why it's going to be that much more productive.
1: Yeah, I think I'll put it, I'll try to put it in a nutshell as currently, or the way it was, was very bad grazing. It wasn't productive. It was mediocre um, grazing. If we put cows in there, it was actually very poor, I guess I should say. It was poor grazing for cows. It was poor forage for wildlife. It was okay cover and okay security. But now, when we get it converted completely to native grasses and plums and all kinds of other stuff, it's going to be extremely – you won't find a better 20 acres in that whole area, that whole, I don't know, part of the county.
0: Five-acre, 5 acre re- You won't five find better
1: summer forage than what's going to be right there. And you won't find probably better – cover and security than right there just because it's got great it's got so much diversity um for the wildlife and so we went from very poor to very very productive and just a just by getting out the competition the non-natives and converting it back to what
0: nature intended it to be bingo we need to talk about trey's property and that 80 acres that we helped sell to trey and that property I, i I'm excited about because 80 acres may not seem like a lot for a guy who has big expectations on trying to manage the habitat, on trying to bring his kids um, up in the outdoors and give them that lifestyle, but that 80 acres separates itself immediately from the rest of the pack, the neighborhood, because it's been logged within the last three to four years um by a lot of oaks were taken out what remains are younger oaks a lot of post oaks shortleaf pine cedar and other just kind of some scrub trees um scrub species hickories i saw ash um sassafras sassafras was and in there even
1: some even some osage orange arc yep. hedge trees whatever you want to call them <coughs> just along the fence rows but um it was still kind of one of those weird sides where it's like, huh? Somebody yeah. planted those for a fence row. Um, it's a very, it's exciting for me to see how excited Trey is about that oh, yeah. piece and his yeah. partner in in buying that, uh, buying that eighty acres. Is it's very, um, they're they're very giddy about it, um, and for good reason. It's the first piece of ground. It's something. I said it in the video. It's like something a lot of us all dream of, and he was able to do it. And not only that, I think Trace Farm is very interesting, and and I say that because, it's like you said, it's been logged, but it's also kind of looked at as being ugly and neglected and not really like it's like, ah, that's a rough piece of
0: ground. But as you and I know, I like it. Well, that, a that's a potential. funny thing. We know Evan Lawler. He was there in the video that he, him and his wife, the listing agent, um, and we talked to him about this property. They had shown it multiple times. They had shown it to several people, but every time they'd gone there, they were bumping deer. They were seeing deer. They talked about that, but they were just saying, "Man, it's just so thick. It's so overgrown. Most people are just overlooking it." I mean, it what? was it was cheap ground. It was it was respectively, you know, for other properties in the area it was it was lower end, cost wise per acre it was at the bottom end of the of the
1: average price around here but and, that's why and, you know what's funny there. about that piece is, oh for
0: sure but that but they overlooked it though you yeah know? And, as soon as they got there it, maybe it didn't meet their requirements however i know they took hunters there and and it still did not um no other contracts were put on it and we were able to take trey take uh, Blake, his, his partner in, in buying the property, and I, I, don't, I don't wanna say we convinced them because as an agent, a real estate agent, I don't wanna convince anyone to buy something. I just wanna provide them with the information as, hey, this is what the property can hold, this is its potential, this is the current state, here are the steps that you should take to make it better, and then this is what you will experience. And they saw that, they trusted our opinion, and they said, heck, yeah, that's that's what I'm looking for, and, and bought it. Yeah, I think with that price point was, okay, let's go look at it. It's 80 acres
1: at that price. Yeah, I want to see it. And when you get there, you're like, yeah A lot of people would automatically say, well, I know why it's that price. It's, yeah. It's covered in briars and underbrush, and it's not pretty, and I can't see through the timber. Um, but the, the thing that really intrigued us, and Matt and I even had the conversation, man, if I had the money, I'd buy it, because mm. it was like, man. That's something we could really do some work on. We could improve it. Um, it's, uh, I think Chip and Joanne always say it's the ugliest house in the best neighborhood in the best neighborhood, or the worst house in the best neighborhood. That's kind of how this farm was. Was you drive around, it's really pretty pasture and everything, and then you see this one, you are like, "Ooh, they logged the heck out of it." Mm-hmm. Well, guess what? There was the the key phrase that Evan kept using was, "Man, we see deer every time we go there, though." Yeah, and it's like, "Oh, yeah, I know why. I want to see this place I, exactly. That's and the so, one I want to see." When uh, Trey said he was looking, we were like, "Yep, let's go check this one out." I Mm -hmm. think they looked at another piece, but when we got to that one. It's like, "Ooh, this is there's definitely something to work here." Yeah, and uh, so we burned it, and that that was the
0: thing. Like it, since I, I, I guess I would say, throughout most of the property, most of the timbered areas, at least sixty to seventy percent, like sunlight was getting to the forest floor. Oh yeah, it was open, and like. So that's why I'm saying, like, most people are like, okay, it's been logged. Like, you know, it's still heavily wooded. Like, this thing was open. This joker was open. They hit it pretty hard. They hit it hard, but a lot of young forests, brambles, grasses, broom sedge. Did you ever look that up on Web
1: Soil Survey? Woodland.
0: Yeah. All woodland. I'm doing his report right now. It's all woodland. Yeah. Yep. And so basically, it's based on the logger. He got it back to what it should be. And now, We just need to manage it with prescribed fire. It's a great road system from the logging. There's a power line that cuts through it. The neighbors had dozed around their property lines. We had great fire breaks. Let's run fire through here. Let's get it back or maintain it at this stage um, that it continues to offer this thick cover that's going to hold deer. And the road systems and the power line that cuts through it, man, you can kill some deer. If there's a good deer on there, which I know there's going to be, Man, that joker, he better watch out. Because yeah. that, that property is extremely huntable. Oh, t- on, that's on, the- top of the, uh, on top of it being good quality habitat, it's extremely huntable. And we're giving away some trade secrets here when we're talking
1: about looking for land because this is <laughs> one of those things where... So oh, you better call I, us. I, I never really thought about that. Like, here's a cheap, cheap piece of property. I'm going to call those guys. Yeah, do it. No, we can definitely help you out. Because, like you said, There was already a road system because of loggers, so all these skidder trails, and we weren't far removed from that operation to where we could clear out the roads and continue to burn, make a few food plots, and the access allows him to maneuver through the property and around the property to where he can hunt it on several different winds and morning, afternoon sets, have food plots. It's 80 acres, but it hunts a lot bigger than that.
0: I'll put it into this perspective. If you've ever... Wanted to do prescribed fire on your property. One of the hangups you either found was too expensive. I'm not comfortable doing it or my gosh, putting in a fire line is, is so much work. This property was set up so well because of the logging road, because of the neighbor. Trey closed on a Thursday. The next Saturday, Adam and I were there on site, burnt that day because of the existing road system on the property. We didn't have to do any additional clearing. We basically took a backpack blower and a weed eater down there, blew out the roads, made sure it was good, walked it, checked for snags, put fire on the ground, and burned it. It was ready to go, but it was overlooked constantly by other people. And
1: well, Now, here is one little bit of a negative with that piece of ground, and that's the fact that because it is logged, he's going to get pretty comfortable in hunting in blinds. Yeah, because there wasn't many trees around these food plots to hunt, but there were a few. Um,
0: and but outside of that, I mean, I would hunt that place in a heartbeat. Well, and here's here's the other thing though too. Because it had been logged, when we when we got a dozer operator to go in there, it wasn't that much time because they were able to get in there, clean out these areas relatively quickly, because it had been logged. It was yeah. pretty much open. There were some stumps that they needed to to remove. But really, from going from a heavily wooded area to what he had, it was much easier for that dozer operator to work in th- these conditions than it was with it completely wooded. Absolutely, uh, I'm very excited to hear positives. how his
1: his place um, evolves, and and uh, I'm I'm curious to see how his deer season goes. Because I mean, I looking at Google Earth, it doesn't look like anybody puts in food plots around him, and right, he's right. going to have a great great system of uh, food plots around. And so he's going to have great forage, probably the best in the neighborhood. He's got the best cover in the neighborhood. For sure. Uh, And so it's No one else is burning. Nobody else is burning. And so nobody's keeping it, hitting that reset button and and allowing nature to be in its most productive state. And so um, I think that property has been looked at as the- as kind of like uh, the the redheaded stepchild, uh, of the neighborhood. yeah, a little bit like a uh, <laughs> that's the that's the ugly, oddball of the neighborhood. But now, I'd say pretty quickly people are gonna say, "Man, that guy's killing some good deer in there." Mm-hmm. And uh, and man, I wish I'd have jumped on that property. Yeah. So I think it's it'll be one thing really cool to watch that evolve. But um, I don't really have anything else to add on Trey's property.
0: Uh, do you? I, just the fact that one. Because he was able to get it at a lower price yeah you know, it's it's an investment opportunity for him too, yeah, you know by managing it, doing this habitat work, it's going to increase the value, harvesting some good deer off of it and turkeys, and not only the fact that he gets to bring his kids into this too, you got to see the excitement there on Parker's face as he's running around the property, just. Being a kid, man, that's oh. that's what I was doing when I was his age. Being a kid, running I'm around. So grateful for being able to grow up in that atmosphere, that having little, land. That boy, I, oh. I, you can't see it on the pod or on the
1: film, but that was sassafras stem that I yeah. gave to him to smell. Of course, I think it smells wonderful, and he's mm-hmm. like, "Blah!"
0: threw it out I was like you little punk. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, that that kid, the day we were filming, did not stop just running. No, like it, it was almost a little distracting. But he was just running. He was having such a ball. And yep. um, that's such a great opportunity for them to be able to enjoy the land together like that. So, for sure. Great property, great ADA. The
1: old barn, uh, that was a cool thing. That's, I, I uh, Like I said on the film, I love that side of it and, and oh, trying yeah. to figure out what the story was. And almost look at it and go... That barn. I wonder what it looked like. The stories uh, it could tell. Oh, I wonder what it looked like around there 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know. It'd be really cool. But it's all like, it's just one of those things that all the work we do, um, you hope that, or you think about if the old man that had this or the man that had this farm at some point could could see it. If he could come back and and see it, I want hopefully be proud of it. Exactly. So yeah. Anyway, uh, I hope everybody enjoyed the first film. I know we sure enjoyed the heck out of making it. It was one of those things. It was just a long time coming. Yep. It takes time to make wine. That's it. And uh, it was just a lot of fun to put together, and hopefully there will be many, many more. Um, I really encourage you guys to share it with your friends and family, and by design, hopefully you can share it with some friends and family that aren't hunters that maybe just like bird watching or maybe they don't even like it or they don't go to the outdoors at all show that to them and see what they think i really i want to encourage all of you to share it with somebody who doesn't hunt but appreciates it or understands it so your wife your sister your aunt your mom whoever it is because that's really kind of a Part of what why we are the way we are with our with our films is try to um, show people that may not be just all about wanting to kill a big deer; they want to enjoy just seeing nature and and hear about nature. So share it with them, and it really is uh, from the heart from us to to uh, put those out there. And hopefully, you guys um, will continue to watch them and share them, and uh, we can continue making them for you guys. So
0: you ready for some would you rather's? Brought to you this. Week by RTP Outdoors. Are you ready? Do you know your would you rather? Oh, that,
1: speaking of RTP, it is almost food plot season. Oh. So, if it's you guys right are, are interested in a, I think the groundbreaker is supposed to be out in May. Mm-hmm. I think it's what they said. So it's coming up. And if you haven't checked out the groundbreaker, it's a pretty cool little implement for smaller tractors. You can use on big tractors, but it's really for smaller tractors. And, uh, I know I'm excited to try and get it because there's some different things you can do with it that we're really really interested in doing. So check them out for your food plot attachments and implements. Um, And swing by St. Louis. When you're in St. Louis, swing by the store and check them out.
0: Adam, running gun situation. Would you rather, let's just say you've got a 50-50 chance of striking a bird, running and gunning, Would you rather do that or would you rather sit in a blind all day turkey hunting over a food plot and have an 80% chance of killing a bird? What would you rather do your hunting preference? I don't even have to answer that and everybody who
1: listens to the podcast very long at all knows that I... Shouldn't have to answer that because they know my I have my ADHD and I'm just sitting here while you're explaining that and dragging it out. I'm already thinking about three other things while you were going because I could already kind of picture where you were going with it. So obviously I'm doing the running gun. I don't even care if I don't hear a bird all day or I hear one gobble. I have way more fun doing that than sitting. Even if it's not in a blind, it's just sitting at the base base of a tree. I don't get the thrill. I I don't get the thrill. I was sitting at the base of a tree just listening to birds chirp than than the thrill I get from running around and hitting a box call and a slate call and just trying to rip it and get one to fire back. I have way more fun than that, so I'm running and gunning, baby. Running and gunning. Okay. All right. Yeah, here's your would you rather. Would you rather shoot mm-hmm. a two-year-old screaming goblin strutting Ooh. coming in or shoot a, would you rather shoot one that inch and a half, inch and five-eight spurs that comes in quiet and just... Surprises you.
0: He didn't gobble all morning. Didn't
1: gobble all morning. It's kinda you were on another bird and all of a sudden you hear like a <laughs> No, you hear a oh. and you turn around and you're like, crap, you gotta swing around and shoot him. Which one would <sighs>
0: Well
1: that's a no brainer for me? I'll shoot I'm the two year old every day I'm of the s- week.
0: If I knew that bird was there and I finally like had worked in that three year old and then he just kinda came in quiet that third morning or whatever, that's the one I'd want to kill. But screaming two-year-old i'll take that to me it's day. the memories and the in the visual memories of, of that of uh,
1: yep, uh, there I'll was one it. time i don't specifically ever really target a turkey um because he's oh i i saw him he's a really big bird i want to get him i usually i'm like i want to i want to get the bird that's going to be the most fun to work but i did one time target a bird called larry longspurs and uh it didn't turn out you so well I've for seen me the
0: hooks on that joker well
1: it was back when I ran f- uh, cameras r- really low on a tree and during February I was putting out corn at the base of the tree oh, trying to get really really close up pictures and he had hooks it I guarantee you no lie they were inch and five eighths or longer mm. like just daggers and it was like I want to get that bird so bad and so I hunted him hard for two year two seasons I hunted that bird because he ran with another one and I never got him and I look back and I'm like Dang, I wasted a lot of mornings going after that stupid bird. So, um, I'm a two-year-old fanatic. So, they anyway, gobble
0: good. They they gobble hard.
1: Be sure to check us out on Sportsman's Nation this Saturday, as we're yep. going to be devoting podcasts specifically. Did I say yeah, I said that right? You said specifically. Pacific- pac- That's uh, an
0: ocean. At, yeah, uh, Adam. specifically, specifically.
1: Sorry, I've been a long day over at Redneck shooting some videos, and so I'm about tongue-tied. Um, so specifically devoted to hunting strategies. And uh this week will probably be spring, so that means turkey hunting strategies, turkey calling, all kinds of fun stuff.
0: So be sure to check it out. All right, guys, we'll catch you next time. See ya. Thanks for listening to another episode of Land and Legacy's Hunting and Habitat Management Podcast. If you like what you hear, check us out at landlegacy.tv. You can submit a viewer question right there and we're answering the podcast, or find us on Facebook and Instagram.
1: Feels pretty good knowing that from the beginning of time, God has called us to be a caretaker, gamekeeper, a manager of the land. So with that being said, don't you think we should do it all for the love of the land and the glory to God?